So I'm going to really talk about um, a field uh, that we've been involved in for a long time that people now call the developmental origins of health and disease. Um, and in the obesity field, uh, most people would date this back to a set of studies that were published in the England Journal by the Pavelli and, and uh, his collaborators. And it traced the offspring of this uh, the Dutch famine that occurred in the western part, northwestern part of Holland uh, after World War, at the end of World War II, where there was a, uh, they couldn't get food in, and people were restricted to six or 800 calories a day of food. And there were a number of offspring uh, who were uh, in utero during that period of time. And the first set of the cohort they looked at were military recruits at the age of 19, so these were all uh, men. Uh, and what they found that uh, if they were in utero during the first two trimesters of pregnancy and their mothers were restricted, there was a higher rate of obesity in those offspring. However, in a follow-up, when they did men and women uh, who had 50 years of age, uh, the, the male uh, obesity rate uh, disappeared, but uh, they found a higher rate of obesity in females. Very um, were differences in the mortality rate? Uh, I don't think they, uh, I, I don't know the answer to that. I'm not sure. Um, I don't believe it was one of the endpoints in this study. Uh, the other thing uh, had to do with uh, mid or late gestation uh, caloric restriction. So if you were in utero during that period of time, uh, there was a reduced birth weight and uh, the offspring tended to develop insulin resistance. And the Europeans have really focused on this set of intrauterine uh, undernutrition, either protein malnutrition or caloric nutrition in most of their studies. Uh, and they, a lot of them work in third world countries where that's also an issue. But of course, in our country, uh, that's not the problem. And if you've seen this, uh, oh, I, I do actually have something to declare, and that is these are my sponsors. Keep <laughs> <laughs> me in business. Uh, um, I don't want to push the wrong thing. This is the real problem, um, and those of you who work with children know this, uh, that we have this increasing uh, prevalence and incidence of obesity in young children. You're starting to see type 2 diabetes in younger and younger ages, uh, ages that really was never seen before. Uh, and it's led us to uh, switch our work from adult obesity, which I think is a, uh, not a treatable disease, uh, effective treatable disease, unless you want to get your that's rewired. I guess that's what a lot of people are doing. But towards prevention and trying to understand the underlying uh, factors that predispose uh, people to obesity. There are a number, of, I, I picked a few of the many, many studies showing that uh, uh, obesity of either parent leads to a, anywhere from a two to five fold increase in the risk of obesity with offspring. And obviously, if it's the, the father, not obviously, but it's suggested, it's got to be uh, a hereditary uh, part to this. And we, of course, know in the work of a number of people that at least two-thirds or up to two-thirds of obesity uh, may be familial or inherited, probably in a polygenic fashion. Uh, and there's also uh, a, a similar kind of uh, association 
with uh, diabetes uh, during pregnancy with both macrosomia and obesity and or glucose intolerance uh, during the adult life of the offspring. So the questions that you would have are, is this nature or nurture or both? Does it have to do with maternal diet? Obesity <coughs> and the mother? Diabetes and or the genetic makeup of the mother? And is this pre or postnatal environment? And I've posed these as either ors, but all of you know that these are not mutually exclusive. And probably, and what I'll, I'll try to show you is that all of these factors are likely involved uh, in the offspring uh, outcome. There are a number of things we, we know from animal work, particularly and suggested by uh, human work that I've already shown you, uh, that predispose offspring to obesity. Under nutrition, I've talked about maternal obesity. High fat diets in and of themselves are a little more difficult to, uh, to uh, kind of dissect out uh, because when you give an animal a high fat diet, the uh, animal often gets obese than the mother. We've been able to do that in the animals that I'm going to talk about because we have uh, rats that don't get obese when you give them a high fat diet. And stress uh, during the gestational period, and particularly corticosteroids, uh, can lead to offspring obesity. And this is relevant uh, particularly to neonates, uh, to uh, preemies who are born uh, early and often given steroids uh, in the NICU because of immature lungs. And um, I'm not sure that anybody's uh, followed them up uh, to see whether there's an increased incidence of obesity. But I would think that would be a reasonable uh, thing to do because of this known association of animals. And then postnatally, there's overnutrition uh, and stress uh, associated with increased obesity. Now, this is the problem we're interested in, but we're interested in the brain and um, the studies of uh, uh, Michael and, and Rudy aside. Um, uh, it's pretty difficult to image uh, the brain of humans, particularly small areas of the brain, um, such as the hypothalamus, when we know it's made up of multiple small nuclei, each of which may do equal and opposite things under a given set of circumstances. So I, I don't think we're there with imaging. We're good with imaging, but I, it's good for large areas, but I think not quite there. And of course, with rats and mice, we can take out the brain and look at it. Now, the important thing I need to talk about first is because I'm interested in neural control of body weight and energy homeostasis, is the developing brain and what happens. And many of you are familiar with this, but I just want to go over it. You have a, a, an undifferentiated stem cell which divides into glial elements and neurons, and then the neurons migrate to the place where uh, they're going to take up their adult, uh, their, their position that they're going to be in, in the adult brain. And then the axons send out processes and they make target attachments. And those target attachments are critical for survival of the neuron, uh, for trophic and possibly uh, other uh, interactions. And the neurons that don't make target attach uh, attachments undergo apoptosis. So you know you're born with a lot more neurons than you have in an adult. Um, and this is a presumptive reason. Uh, apoptosis goes on all through life uh, in different populations. And now we know that there's neurogenesis. Uh, we know about it from the, from the work of the hippocampus, but there's increasing evidence, still debatable, uh, as to whether or not neurogenesis uh, continues into adult life. Uh, this is new neuron formation in the hypothalamus uh, and other brain areas. 
this is the problem that we have when we try to uh, make analogies between our work in rats and mice and the human brain, and that is that the human hypothalamus, and amazingly, there are very few studies in, primate, in primates and or humans uh, that document this, but it's thought that the hypothalamus is pretty fully developed uh, before birth, uh, and much of it occurs during the first trimester. Uh, at least the birth of neurons occurs in the first trimester. And the rat, on the other hand, uh, the, the kind of canonical uh, tale was that the hypothalamus in the rat develops mostly between about E12 and 16 to 18. <coughs> Those are the neurons that are born and uh, reach uh, their adult destination. But we know that axonal outgrowth, particularly from hypothalamic neurons, occurs almost exclusively postnatal. So it's a very different brain from the primate brain. And it makes going back and forth very difficult, but it gives us the advantage of being able to intervene in this postnatal period very nicely and do a lot of manipulations uh, that would be a little more difficult to control in the, uh, during the gestational period. So here's an example. Uh, here's uh, the uh, base of the third ventricle. I think a lot of you are familiar with this. Uh, these, this part is lined with tanocytes. Thank you. Um, here's the ventromedial nucleus, the arcuate, the median eminence. And this tanocyte layer is uh, very interesting because it, it uh, is where a lot of the stem cells for neurons in the hypothalamus uh, live. And this is work from uh, Sue Ozan's group uh, in, in Cambridge. Uh, and this is, these are cells expressing the long form of the leptin receptor. It's an in situ hybridization. And you can see it at postnatal day four, they're still sitting predominantly in this tanocyte layer in the third, in the third ventricle, somewhat up into the ependymal layer as well. By P10, you're starting to see a little less in the, in the uh, lining of the third ventricle, and they're starting to migrate out into their adult position, and it's not until, well, uh, until P19, when you get the adult disposition uh, of the arcuate and the ventral, uh, sorry, the uh, dorsomedial part of the ventral nucleus. So this is all going on postnatally in the, in the rat, contrary to what uh, we've been told in prior studies suggested. And then there's this work from at least two of the different labs. This is uh, work from uh, Pansia et al. Uh, showing, uh, they, and the, the technique that's been used here is different from what's used in other places. These two groups that I'm going to show you put a catheter into the uh, uh, lateral or third ventricle and constantly infuse BRDU, which you know inserts itself uh, into DNA in actively dividing cells. So anything. As the BRD, when BRD is being given, it's taken up by actively dividing cells, and that tells you when those cells were born. And this is an adult that was infused for 12 days in the lateral ventricle, uh, and this is a marker for a neuronal marker here. This is BRDU. So these cells were born, and this is in the hypothalamus, uh, during this infusion period in, I think, a three-month-old rat. Similarly, from uh, Jeff, uh, from uh, Flyers group, Jeff Flyers group in Boston, uh, and this work was done before that other work, uh, a similar sort of uh, study uh, putting the uh, BRDU into the third ventricle. People argue that that is a, gives you an artifactual uh, labeling of cells, and I don't know the answer to that. I'm not 
not a real developmental biologist, so, uh, but I think this is where the argument comes in. But these are new neurons as labeled with double core. So there's at least this possibility that new neurons are formed in the adult brain in the hypothalamus. The problem is that we know that the brain, the adult brain, actively inhibits axonal outgrowth to any extent. And so if these new neurons are formed, where are they going? What are they doing? Uh, in the hippocampus, where we know a lot about it, they actually uh, in integrate themselves into the existing circuitry. But what are these neurons doing? Uh, we just don't know the answer to that. Uh, are they acting as mini pumps? Could it be a POMC neuron, for example? Flyers group has suggested that some of these are POMC. Are they just dumping out alpha MSH locally? Uh, we don't know the answer to that. Okay, and this is the pathway that virtually all of you, I suspect, in this room know from the arcuate uh, to some of its targets in the PVN lateral hypothalamus. Uh, and you know that MPY is all over the brain and the peripheral nervous, uh, sympathetic nervous system, at least. Uh, it's a potent orexigen. You put it into the brain, animals eat like crazy. Uh, and right next to that are the POMC neurons. And depending on whether it's rat or mice, they're either digitated or uh, segregated out. The MPY neurons talk to the POMC neurons, and, and you know the POMC neurons in, this, in these particular neurons make alpha MSH, which is a potent erect, uh, anorectic uh, compound, which also increases energy expenditure. <coughs> it's a melanocortin. It interacts with melanocortin 3 and 4 receptors. I'm going fast because I know you all know this. And then probably the most interesting compound in, uh, or peptide in the brain is AGRP because it's the only one that's really well documented to be a functional antagonist uh, of any peptide or transmitter that we know of, uh, this is the only one that I know of, at least, that's a functional antagonist. Actually, it's an inverse agonist. It, it acts as an antagonist. So when the NPY neurons fire off, you get a potent orexigen uh, dumped out, as well as an inhibitor of the anorectic. And the other important thing is that these targets of these neurons, uh, I think of as, and a lot of people do, as second-order neurons, and those are the ones that send the signal out all over the place. So the orexin neurons, for example, in lateral hypothalamus, a small, relatively small group of neurons, go everywhere in the central nervous system and mediate a, a, a large number of functions, or at least influence a large number of functions. The uh, MCH, uh, concentrating hormone neurons, have a slightly uh, less widespread distribution, but also uh, have many inputs to areas involved in energy homeostasis and many of those are mediated through brainstem centers. And I, I, this is, I, I'm going to talk a lot about hypothalamus, but I don't want you to think that I believe that the hypothalamus is the be-all and end-all of, uh, of uh, energy homeostasis. It's just that that's where we focus. And this is sort of the, the way we think about this, that leptin and insulin made in proportion to the amount of adipose tissue uh, is a negative feedback system on the orexigenic uh, peptides. Uh, and so when, when they're released, they decrease uh, the activity of these neurons as well as uh, the production and release of uh, neuropeptide Y and HRP. And on the other hand, they stimulate uh, the, uh, the anorectic pathway. This is what they do in the adult uh, and in the juvenile rat. But the most important thing is that <coughs> during the first two weeks of postnatal development, and probably prenatal as well, leptin insulin as well, are important neurotropic and neurotrophic factors. That's their primary role. They have virtually no role in energy homeostasis that anybody has convincingly uh, 
demonstrated, to my knowledge, during that first two weeks uh, of life. Partly because the pathways haven't developed through which they might mediate their effects. So during this period of time, they're doing something very different than they do uh, during the rest of life. And this is a, a, a diagram from uh, Sebastian Bure uh, showing some of the things that leptin has been demonstrated to do. Uh, one is axon outgrowth, which I'll talk about because he and I have similarly have collaborated on that. Uh, the other is to uh, alter dendritic morphology and synaptic plasticity and neurogenesis, the neuron formation. All of those are under the control of leptin. Insulin does similar sorts of things. And neurogenesis and outgrowth, uh, these occur in the cortex cannabis. So these are things that have been demonstrated in different parts of the brain. The question is, uh, which, if any of these, we know the axon growth story, do any of these others occur Balance, and I think the, uh, the answer is beginning to be yes, although we don't have good uh, evidence yet. And so our interest has been, again, in, in these POMC and NPY neurons, where we know that leptin is required for the full outgrowth of axons to targets, at least in the paraventricular nucleus. And this is work <coughs> that was done by uh, Sebastian Bure and Rich Simile and OB and DBDB mice. Um, and if you don't have leptin during that critical two-week period, uh, postnatally, you get in, imperfect or incomplete development of the axonal projections to the uh, paraventricular nucleus. Uh, and if you give leptin back during that period to an OB-OB mouse, you can restore that or, or cause it to have a, a complete uh, restoration. But if you give it after that two-week period, nothing happens. Okay. Now, our particular interest has always been not only in these sort of basic uh, issues, but also in how environment and genes interact uh, in, in causing obesity, both in the adult and in the developing animal. And it stems back to work that we did uh, in my lab uh, over the last 25 years. Uh, and it, we started out with these outbred spray dolly rats from Charles River. And I specify the supplier because spray dollar rats are not the same from all different breeds. Even though it's an outbred strain, uh, the Charles River rats were bred to be rapid weight gainers. And it turns out that they're a very obesity-prone strain. But in addition to that, we found the following. That is, if you give them a low-fat chow diet uh, throughout life, you get a pretty much um, uh, monotonic uh, weight gain. And this would be an example in an adult rat. If you give them what uh, uh, we call a high-energy diet, 31% fat, which used to be the American diet when I started working in the field, and of course no longer is, um, but they still, it works pretty well. About half of those animals overeat like crazy during the first three to four weeks after they're exposed to the diet. Uh, and during that period of time, they uh, increase their blood pressure, they get insulin-resistant, hypertrichoacidemia, um, and this is sort of the mini or the, the rat version of the metabolic syndrome, not completely. In that same group of animals, there are these what we call diet-resistant animals, uh, or obesity-resistant animals, some people call them, that overeat for about three or four days, but something clicks in and they realize they're eating too many calories and they bring their cal caloric intake back down to that of the low-fat animals, and they gain exactly the same amount of weight and this goes on for as long as you want to keep on the diet. But the thing that's special about these DIO animals, uh, to my mind, is the fact that unlike a lot of rat and mouse strains, once you make them obese, they stay obese. 
very reminiscent of humans. And that is, if you switch them back to a low-fat diet, they'll stay obese for months, literally four or five months. Uh, and uh, so they, their weight gain will plateau, but they stay obese. And more to the point, and more like humans, if you restrict them down, and we've done it for six or eight weeks, uh, calorically, these are on, uh, now on a low-fat diet, to the level of the controls, and you release them to eat what they want, they go right back up to where they would have been if they had been restricted. And Paul McLean has done this for 16 weeks, the equivalent in a human of roughly about 12 years. So this is the conundrum or the problem uh, of these rats, but more to the point of humans. And I like to call it set point because it annoys a lot of people. Uh, I don't actually care what you call it uh, because uh, it, 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 to me, it, it, it fulfills my criteria of set point. But more importantly, it's, it's uh, genetic and origin. We have long ago, we separated and bred the high and low weight gainers. Uh, and after about three generations of, of uh, we call it selective breeding because we don't breed first and second degree relatives. We try to not inbreed too many genes that we didn't want. Um, we were able to uh, get a, essentially 100% penetrance of the, of the phenotype, the DIO or DR phenotype. And we're now at about 50 uh, generations, and we still maintain the phenotype. We, we do tend to bring back in uh, outbreds that we've uh, selected again. About every 10th generation, we'll bring them back in uh, to the strain to, to keep too much inbreeding from happening. Um, but it's a very robust phenotype. And with Stream Sinchua, when he was here, <coughs> we, we did a breeding strategy where we took the DIOs and bred them with Fisher F344s, which some of you know are relatively obesity-resistant animals. And again, within th and those we inbred, and within three breeding cycles, we had an obesity-prone, we call them FDIO rats. Uh, and uh, they also were markedly insulin-resistant even before they became obese. So they had the same quality of only getting obese when you give them extra fat in the diet, but they were insulin resistant before. So we think this is genotype. Uh, we've made some feeble attempts at, uh, at uh, trying to identify genes, uh, and we didn't find anything, but we're pretty sure it's at least more than one gene. And the other I've thing... Have methylation, have you? No, uh, we're, we're going we're gonna to do some of that um, with the leptin receptor gene with uh, Kelly Tamashiro, but um, I, we can talk about that later, but it's, it's as you know, a big project to, to do that and knowing what to look at. And does it matter at what age, you, if you made the animals DIO later, would you see the same phenotype? Uh, yeah, it's, what's critical is the age that you start them on the diet. That's what I'm asking. If you start them before puberty, you get no DR or DIO phenotype. If you start them after puberty, puberty, then you get the phenotype. Um, and I don't understand that, but there are a lot of things that uh, the work we've done pre-pubertal now that look like it's absolutely dependent on doing it within that critical window before puberty. Um, about six or seven weeks of age. And so if you do it before puberty, which phenotype do they adopt? Uh, they all get obese. So when we, we did a series of studies, they all get obese. They do a lot of strange things, though. But over the years, one of the things that's become apparent about these rats is that they are leptin resistant. Again, another term that some people would uh, uh, argue with. And this is before you make them obese. So we all know that if you make people or, or 
or rats or mice uh, obese, they get a lot of leptin and they become less sensitive to the central and peripheral effects of leptin. These animals, if you take them out of the box and you study them before puberty, but when they're on a low-fat diet, uh, you get a lot of the results that I'm going to show. One is if you give leptin, and we, this was given lateral ventricular to save money, but you can give it peripherally, uh, you get a nice anorectic response over 24 hours in the resistant animals. Same doses, nothing in you know, the DIO animals. If you put a thermistor uh, remotely uh, monitored uh, temperature uh, monitor under the brown adipose pad uh, and give leptin to a DR rat, you get a very uh, rapid increase in temperature and it lasts for more than six hours with a single dose uh, in, in a ventricle. If you do the same thing to the DIO rat, there's a delay of up to an hour and it's self-limited. It only lasts about three or four hours. Again, I would maintain that these animals, before they become obese, have an inborn, or at least at this point, at four, five, five or six weeks of age, uh, have a decreased behavioral and physiologic response to leptin. Uh, this is a receptor binding autoradiograph for leptin receptor binding, uh, and it labels all forms of leptin receptors, so that's why you see it in the, uh, in the lateral ventricle and in the choroid plexus and other places. But we've used that technique as one way of looking at the downstream parts of the, of the leptin receptor because you know there really aren't any good antibodies to the long form. So if we look again in, in DIO and DRs before they've been exposed to high fat diet, we find this small but reproducible decrease in the message for the long form of leptin receptor. 10 or 15 percent in the arcuate, the ventromedial, dorsomedial nuclei. But it is reproducible, but it's, it's pretty small. On the other hand, if we look at binding in those same areas, in, those, in animal comparable animals, we find a 30 to 50% decrease in binding. So there are a lot of explanations for this, and one of the ones we're working on is that there's a trafficking problem, that we don't actually know how much leptin a receptor is made. That's, we don't have a way of looking at that. But one possibility is that there's a problem of trafficking, either getting the receptor to the membrane or having it trafficked away from the membrane too uh, rapidly. And there's very little known as uh, discussed uh, about the trafficking of these receptors. Uh, we know a lot about insulin, but very little about, about the receptor. And everybody knows this pathway. I just, just to remind you of the three sort of uh, typical pathways that people talk about, uh, we like to use the STAT-3 pathway because uh, the phosphorylated form of STAT uh, dimerization that occurs when you give leptin uh, is a nice immunocytochemical target that we can look at get nice anatomical specificity and actually count cells. Um, and so when we do that, and this is at P10, so this is, this is a, a early DNA, uh, we find about a 25% reduction in the number of PSTAT uh, labeled label cells uh, in the uh, arcuate nucleus uh, of the uh, DIO rat at P10. We see very little PSTAT induction in the ventromedial nucleus at this age, uh, which other people have talked about. Can you remind me, was this, did you, was this on Chow? Yes. Maternal diet? Yeah. All of the chow. data I'm showing you, yes, all the data I'm showing you, maternal diet, Chow, offspring, weaned off the Chow. Right? So these animals, the, the DIO uh, offspring are always bigger, but when you look at their fat content, it's the same as the DR rats until you put them on high fat. So yeah, all of these, 
And if we take out, and it's part of the work we do, we're interested in, in uh, neuronal signaling uh, in the ventromedial and arcuate nucleus. So we dissociate neurons from the uh, ventromedial nucleus, and we use calcium imaging as an index, an indirect index of activity. And this is a neuron uh, in which we've uh, exposed it to two and a half millimolar glucose, which is about what brain glucose is after a big meal. And you can see this uh, neuron has an increase in calcium flux. Uh, if we put it into low glucose, these are, would be fasting levels. It turns off and back on at two and a half. We call this a glucose excited neuron. If we put it into the low glucose situation and add nanomolar concentrations of leptin, we get increasing activity of those neurons. There are almost equal number of neurons that are inhibited by leptin. Uh, we, we think we know why they're inhibited. That's work done by Mike Ashford. We don't really know uh, the mechanism for this excitation, but we uh, can clearly show in these dissociated neurons uh, that, uh, that it is so. And we can then suck the guts out of these and take the cytoplasm and measure the RNA uh, using single-cell uh, quantitative real-time PCR. And this particular neuron uh, expressed glucokinase, which is a marker of glucose-sensing neuron. Uh, uh, it, it expressed the long-form leptin receptor, the insulin receptor. This is all message, of course. Uh, and it was a glutamatergic, uh, sorry, a GABAergic neuron. This is the uh, synthetic enzyme for GABA. Uh, so uh, using these sorts of things, we can, we can look at these neurons. And when we do that, again, uh, these are four-week-old, uh, three to four-week-old offspring. Uh, we can see that the response to leptin uh, at the single cell level uh, sorry, okay, is dampened in the DIL rats. So they get a decreased percentage of cells that are excited by leptin. And finally, well, not finally, uh, this is work that we did with Sebastian and Rich Simile. Um, these, it's a little hard to see, uh, but these were uh, the terminals in the paraventricular nucleus where Sebastian put DI-I, uh, which is an anterograde tracer, this is all done post-mortem, uh, into the arcuate uh, of these P16 animals. Uh, and what you can see is the axonal projections in the PVN, and if you can't tell it by eye when he did the quantitation, it was a 50% reduction. And this is about what you see in the OBOB mouse that's raised with no leptin at this age. So this is a substantial reduction. And when we've looked at AGRP and, uh, uh, and, and uh, POMC or alpha-MSH, uh, you get equal decreases in both of those. And that's also what you see pretty much in the so you could argue, well, if you've got a decrease in both of those opposing systems, uh, what's the uh, significance of it? Well, we won't deal with that. So we think this is a decrease in neurotrophic action. And to prove that, uh, Rich had worked for a number of years to get these explants of arcuate uh, going. And uh, in the same paper from Sebastian that was published in uh, Cell Metabolism, uh, this is what happens when you uh, add leptin to one of these explants. You get this robust outgrowth of uh, proximal uh, axons, and you, you can see here quantitated um, the increase in the resistant animals, but in DIO you get nothing with the same concentrations. So this trophic uh, uh, interaction of leptin uh, with these arcuate neurons uh, is essentially gone uh, at these concentrations, both in the uh, developed in vivo situation and in vitro. And this is work we did uh, with uh, Laurie uh, Cato Flanagan at Penn, 
These are Golgi preps. Uh, they take about four years to do these studies. Uh, they're, they're very you know, laborious counting dendritic arborizations. And uh, the diagram really doesn't show, uh, or the, the tracings don't show this, but when you quantitate those, uh, you find that the DIO animals, again, this is at five or six weeks of age, they're not fat, but we did put some on my on the diet to make them fat. And that the diet had no effect, uh, but there's a uh, shortening or uh, the, the, these laterally uh, projecting uh, dendrites uh, that go out toward the paraventricular nucleus uh, are considerably shorter in the DIO animal. So again, another uh, feature of leptin resistance. And what age was that? That was done at five weeks of age. Uh, oh, sorry, no, 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 uh, at eight weeks of age because we started them on diet at four weeks of age and they were four weeks on, the, on either chow or diet. So we don't have it in younger animals. So in summary, uh, we think this is a polygenic form of obesity uh, and that once you get obese, if you're a DIO uh, rat in our colony, uh, you're always obese. Uh, they develop this rat version of metabolic syndrome and they have this pre-existing leptin resistance. We also have studies with Debbie Clegg showing that they're essentially insulin resistant uh, as well, at least to the anorectic effects of industrial strength doses of uh, insulin. And they have these abnormal uh, developmental features in those pathways that are dependent on leptin. Um, and including the dendritic organizations. Okay, so I, I spent a lot of time trying to go over the ground rules here to sort of introduce you to the model and the, the kind of things that we're interested in uh, and are important uh, to consider when you start doing these sorts of studies. And now we can use that model, and that's really why we developed these animals to begin with. So we can do developmental studies. So we know right away who is who. Uh, that we, if we had a DIO dam, she was only going to have DIO offspring and, and vice versa. And that was really important. And in fact, that's why we developed the stream. So this was the original study we did way back in 1998. Uh, it actually started probably in 1995 because it was a very long study. We took DIO and DR uh, dams and we fed them for two uh, months before uh, exposing them to males uh, on either the chow diet or the HE 31% fat diet. And on that diet, uh, the leans did not get obese, but they were on the same high fat diet. There was actually a fifth group of DR rats that we put on Insure, which is a highly palatable diet that makes them obese, so, but it's not a high fat diet. So we had a fifth control group, but I, I didn't, I'm not gonna show you those data because they're really the same as all the other DR data. Uh, but we control for obesity and for high fat diet. And what you can see is what we always see in these animals, and that is that the DIO animals are heavier. Uh, and we've done a whole on a genetic study to show that uh, during all this time, although they're bigger than the DRs, they, as I told you, they have the same amount of carcass adiposity if they're on low-fat diet. Uh, they were weaned here onto chow for about 16 weeks. And although they're bigger, you don't see any effect of maternal obesity or high-fat diet here that you can notice in body weight gain. But once you put them on the uh, HE diet for four weeks, the ones that had obese DIO mothers become more obese, become heavier. But if we go back, and, and they have more adipose tissue, but if we go back to this group, 
and look at them, even though they have the same body weights, and we look at their carcass adiposity, in this case we did fat pads, did it as a percent of body weight, what you find is that, as I told you, the, the uh, DIOs fed chow have the same adiposity as both sets of, of uh, DR offspring, but the ones that had obese DIO dams, and even if they were weaned out to chow, and even though they weighed the same as, all, as this group, they have about 50% more carcass fat. So again, most of you know that body uh, weight is not necessarily a good index of adiposity, and this is a good example. So even if you have obese genes, and your mother was obese during pregnancy, and you happen to be one of these rats, you're going to get fatter even uh, as, as an uh, adult, even if you're on a low-fat diet. And I showed you data uh, that the uh, DIO ventromedia nucleus neurons are less sensitive to leptin when, on, when they're fed chow, but if the mothers were on a high-fat diet, uh, and these animals, this is three or four weeks, so they're, they're eating the maternal diet. They haven't quite been weaned yet. Uh, they're eating the maternal diet. High-fat diet, independent of obesity, actually lowers the sensitivity to leptin, even in the DR rats, uh, and does it DIs. So there's a complicated mix of diet, genotype, uh, and maternal obesity. So there's worse news. Uh, we did a, a huge study, or I should say Judy Gorski did a huge study, a graduate student uh, then in the lab, in which she took about eight different combinations and permutations of cross-fostering, uh, taking DR, uh, offspring of DR dams that were either obese or lean during pregnancy, uh, and DIO dams that were obese or lean during uh, gestation, uh, and cross-fostering. And I'm going to show you only the, the take-home message, because all the other things were sort of not quite uh, uh, statistically significant. But the group in which we took offspring of DR dams, lean DR dams, and cross-fostered them to other lean DR dams, gave one set of results. But if we took DR offspring and at P2, second postnatal day, cross-fostered them to obese DIO dams, this is what we got. Now this is out. Um, See, I think this was about 10 weeks of age uh, after they had been put on uh, chow from weaning. If you are a resistant, genetically resistant, but you've been reared with an obese DIO dam during just two weeks of lactation, actually three weeks uh, they were with them until they were weaned, and we killed them, what we found was HERP message was up by 45%. That's a remarkable amount that you might find in an animal that had fasted for 24 to 48 hours. And although there wasn't any change in leptin and insulin receptor message uh, in the arcuate, there was a, about a 40 to 50% reduction in those in the ventromedia nucleus, which we know now is an important site for uh, energy homeostasis regulation. So you would predict that these are, this is an anabolic state, that if you put them on a high fat diet, they would become more obese, and in fact, that's what we found. Uh, they ate more, this is on uh, four weeks of, of HE diet, um, they, they ate more, they gained more body weight, they had higher fat pad weights as a percentage, that's total fat pad, but also as a percentage of body weight. They had increased plasma leptin levels, and they had an increased area under the uh, of, uh, uh, curve for insulin in an oral glucose tolerance. Glucose was not at home. 
So that's a big 50% increase in the area of the glucosamine. So the, the, if you only have a lean genotype and you're exposed early on to an obese DIO phenotype uh, uh, environment, this is what happens to you. So what could that be due to? Well, there are probably a number of different possibilities. The two that we've explored is one, whether there are differences in maternal pup interaction, which we know are important for later development. And the answer is, I won't show you data, that they, the, the DIO pup uh, mothers are, uh, have the same interactions with their pups uh, as the DR mothers do, whether obese or lean. And the other would be the amount and content of the milk. Well, we couldn't really do amount, but we chose to look at the fatty acid composition and the leptin and insulin composition of the milk uh, of the DIOs. We did this for that all of those eight combinations of fermentation, but again, this is these are the relevant data. What we found was this startling decrease of mono and polyunsaturated fatty acids in the milk of the obese DIO dams. And you know that uh, some of you know that this, these are critically important for the development of the nervous system as well as other organ systems, but particularly in the, the nervous system. And even though these are lactating dams, so their body weight comes down, the obese DIO dams, their insulin levels are now the same as the resistant dams because they're of the large energy output. But look what they're doing with the insulin in their, in their milk. It's a, almost a three-fold increase in the amount of insulin that they're secreting in their milk. Now, why should that be important? Well, Andres Plajman, who did this crazy experiment, I would have never thought of doing, but it's an interesting one. He put insulin directly into the hypothalamus of newborn animals uh, at either P2 or P8. And what you can see is when he followed their body weights uh, following that infusion of insulin, uh, he got a, a fatter animals at P2 and much fatter animals. This is on low-fat diet uh, into the animal uh, period. So something about hyperinsulinemia in the hypothalamus seems to predispose uh, to obesity. There's some other studies that suggest that that also may be true. We haven't followed that line of investigation. In, in, the, anim in the animal, can ingested insulin actually get into the bloodstream? Okay, yeah, good question. Yes. So first of all, you, you probably know that that's how human infant gets, infants get their antibodies uh, in the early days before they make their own from maternal milk. Well, it turns out that in rats, and, uh, we've done this and a number of other people have done it as well, if you gavage them with leptin or insulin, you can raise the puff levels of both. And that's probably true up to about P8, and that's when probably the digestive, the, uh, digestive enzymes and uh, the pH changes in such a way that you can't absorb it anymore. Uh, but yes, absolutely, and you can get big increases. Uh, the more you put in, the more you get in, uh, into the systemic circulation of the offspring. And is the fatty acid content of the dams determined by how fat they were or what they were eating at the time that they're nursing? We don't know the answer to that uh, because uh, we, we left them all in the same diet. So, but we have the control of the DR dams who are on the same high-fat diet. I didn't show you those data, but again, we did all these combinations. And the DR on high-fat diet looked just like all the other dams. So it's just the DIO dams that had this peculiar uh, combination. Question, just sure. if you change the amount of your supplemental fatty acids like omega-3s, etc., is it more of a ratio that's the issue now? Or is it just we, the high amount? We don't know. This was a, uh, I'm hoping we'll be able to do some more on this at another time, but there are a huge number of questions we'd love to know about. And, and more and more people started to do this sort of thing, uh, to look at those kinds of uh, really important questions. 
we just were happy to find that we got this enormous difference. Is, is, is yes. Is breast milk from humans different? Well, uh, yeah, it seems to be. Uh, Plodgerman has done an interesting and disturbing uh, set of studies, and I think somebody else has done the same thing, where he looked at offspring of mothers, diabetic, obese diabetic mothers who breastfed their infants, and the incidence of obese uh, of uh, glucose intolerance was much higher in those offspring. Now, it was not, it was a bit of a prospective study and it needs to be repeated, but I say disturbing because everybody thinks that, you know, breastfeeding is such a wonderful thing. Well, it may not be, and, and certainly our data suggests that it may not be the best thing if you're, uh, if, you know, your milk is not the best quality. Okay, so here's, finally, I'll, I'll give you some good news, and this was uh, from uh, Krista Patterson, uh, who's now uh, working with Martin Myers, who I understand was here last week. Uh, and Krista um, said, well, you know, uh, we've looked at this early period, but we know that the brain is still developing um, for weeks and weeks. And, and anybody who has a teenage son particularly knows that even at 18 years of age, their brain, uh, certainly their judgment <laughs> is, is not developed at all. Um, so we know that certain parts of the brain develop for a long time. So she said, well, you know, what if we take the animals, wean them, uh, and let's, let's give them the worst case scenario. Let's take the DRO rats and give them a high fat diet. And we'll give half of them a running wheel because we know from studies we've done in adult uh, DIO rats that you can take an obese DIO uh, rat and as long as it, an adult is running, it lowers its body weight and its fat content and, uh, as long as it's running. As soon as you stop, they go right back up. But it is an effective way of getting off some of the body fat because uh, rats run all the time. Bored out, bored out of the boards and, they, you know, and it's actually rewarding for them. Uh, so she put them on running wheels for two, three, six weeks, and she found that three but not two weeks were enough to give you this phenomenon. That is, although there were no differences in body weight, remember they're both on this high-fat diet from weaning. Um, so here we are, no differences in body weight. I can tell you that there were differences in body fat at that point. She removed the wheels. And here's what happened. Even though they remained on the high-fat diet, these guys never regained the body weight that you would have expected if they had never been exercised. And more to the point, if she looked at fat pads, they had a 50% reduction oops, in fat pad uh, weight and, and actually percentage of fat, of fat pads as a percentage of body weight. These are just the DIO rats? Just the DIOs. Um, the DRs get essentially no effect of body weight of exercise. Uh, we, those are other studies we've done. Uh, it's also a female thing with uh, female DIOs and uh, female DRs get very little effect. Uh, we can talk about that at another point. Uh, so what, what happens to them when they exercise? So here's what happens after three weeks of exercise in the DIO rats. Remember, when we gave them uh, you don't remember, but this dose of, of, uh, of uh, leptin uh, given peripherally, uh, remember these are relatively leptin-resistant strain uh, to the DIO rats that were uh, given saline uh, versus leptin, you get no effect on, on food intake in 24 hours. But the ones that have been exercising for three weeks get a robust 50% decrease in food intake, much as you would expect of the DR rats, which we didn't do in this particular. And here's after they've been off the wheels for three weeks, uh, four weeks, exercise three weeks, sedentary for four weeks, you still get a pretty nice anorectic effect in the animals that are still exercising. 
but these are the ones that were exercised and have been sedentary for four weeks. They're still getting an increased response to leptin. I'll tell you that this goes away over the next uh, seven or eight weeks, uh, yet they maintain that lower body weight possible. And if we look at leptin receptor binding, uh, interestingly, uh, this is after three weeks of exercise, you get an increase in binding of almost 50% in the ventromedian nucleus and a little less in the dorsomedian, but no difference in arcuate uh, binding. If we look at STAT3 phosphorylation in response to leptin, you see an increase uh, in the uh, exercising uh, arcuate, but not in these other areas. We don't understand the discrepancy. Do you see the change in the message on A level? We don't see anything in so the it's message. All post it's all post transmission. Yeah. yeah. What constitutes giving exercise to them? Because then we just giving free access to the meal. Yes. And they all run different amounts. And the interesting thing is uh, the amount of weight they lose has nothing to do with how far they uh, run. It doesn't correlate at all. Uh, it's how it affects their food intake. Uh, and uh, this we've shown that, a number of people have shown that. But it doesn't matter how, how much they work, except for the ones, when we get uh, adult DAOs that are really fat, they'll sit in the thing and just rock back and forth. <laughs> and somebody told me that they saw rats that, that would just take it and, and uh, <laughs> so those don't count. We, you do have to look at your animals when you... Do they hang their laundry on? <laughs> so, so there are some limits to that statement, but... Uh, but you know, somebody just said there, so the differences in weight are entirely attributable, or that you know, calorie stored are entirely attributable to changes to differences in food intake. There's no evidence of a thermogenic. No. Uh, well, we haven't we haven't looked at their uh, their thermogenic output. But what I can say is the highest correlations, and they're just correlations, are with food intake, body weight, fat uh, pad weight, gonadotropin um, uh, UCP one expression. That's as close as we come to thermogenic. And these are pre-pubertal These, no, uh, yes, they were started uh, pre-pubertal, yes. They were started four weeks of age. Uh, if we haven't done the experiment, we plan to, we don't know exactly what age you <coughs> start them at. We do know if you start in adults, you get only, uh, they only stay down as long as they're exercising. Uh, that's been shown. Okay. One of the places we're now focusing the most um, really has to do with some work uh, that Michael and Rudy have done in humans and, and rats, I guess, and that is this idea of increasing leptin sensitivity and the idea that uh, in, in, if you're fasting, your leptin sensitivity goes up. But what we're interested in is we've got an animal that we think is, comes out of the box, out of the uterus, being leptin resistant. And we think that that's a predisposing factor to becoming obese when they're faced with a high-fat diet. And so we've started to, to look at a number of different manipulations that might increase leptin sensitivity, particularly early on in life, where we might get a sustained effect. And that's what that exercise uh, model was about, because we <laughs> predicted that we'd get an increase in leptin sensitivity. Now, many of you know these uh, early experiments from Gordon Kennedy. You know that he was the father of the lipostatic hypothesis, but many people actually don't know that he was the one who originated this idea of, of changing litter cells to affect long-term outcome. And this is work that uh, Jules Hirsch picked up on later with uh, Marcy, Green. Marcy and Pat uh, Johnson did that and Irving Faust. Um, 
you can, by raising pups in small litters, two or three per dam, make them more obese when they're adults. Uh, if you put them in, and they use huge litters of 18 to 20, uh, you can make them skinnier, but they also tend to get stunted when you use that, that size uh, uh, litter. And what he showed is that the ones in large litter, not surprisingly, eat less because the mothers just can't give, make enough milk. So uh, uh, we hypothesized that if we raise the DIO pups uh, from an early age in large litters, we might have a long-term effect on their body weight outcome. And what we found was that indeed was true. We uh, had our large litters were 16, and we actually have rats in our colony that have 16 pups. So this isn't out uh, of the, the normal range. Uh, or we put them in normal litters. And this we did this at, at P2, second postnatal day. And what we got were smaller animals, um, at less body weight gain during uh, the first uh, two to three weeks of, of during lactation. And what we found is when we sacrificed animals that did trunk blood leptin, uh, we found a nice diurnal pattern in the normal litter animals of plasma leptin levels. But you can see that we had a reduction of almost a third in the animals that were raised in large litters. Now, you remember during this period of time, those animals have virtually no fat. Where's the leptin coming from? Well, we don't, don't know, but we think that some, if not all of it, is coming from the mother uh, during this period of time. But we, we don't know the answer there. Uh, I'm very suspicious there, because we know the stomach and other organs can make leptin. Uh, but it certainly reduces the leptin. And our idea was that if that were true, uh, and we know that leptin receptors, at least in some people's hands, uh, act like GPCRs, and that is if you lower the ligand concentration, the receptor, uh, may go up. And in fact, uh, we'll show you that that's what happened. If we took those animals uh, and weaned them onto a low-fat diet, they were they gained less weight. If we put them onto our high-energy diet at the end of that period of time, uh, they were relatively obesity-resistant. We looked at nasal anal length, and raising them in that size litters did not make them shorter, at least for linear growth. So we think they're not smaller animals. They just have less carcass adiposity, uh, and they actually, if anything, had a slight increase in lean body mass. And what's responsible for that? Well, here you are um, at 10 weeks, after 10 weeks on chow, the animals raised in a large litter had an increased anorectic effect of leptin at our standard dose of five milligrams per kilogram. And if we looked at postnatal day 16, 10 weeks of chow, and even after three weeks on high energy diet, which even in the DR rats will make them leptin resistant for as far as uh, food intake goes, we've got this increase in binding of leptin, uh, and this is in the arcuate nucleus. So something about that early two week exposure, two to three week exposure uh, to the dam, uh, where they couldn't eat as much, their leptins were lower, we get this long term increase least in the amount of leptin receptor body. No change in message, by the way. Uh, so it's, it's all post-transcriptional. We think this is epigenetic. We think it almost has to be epigenetic because leptin receptor sensitivity goes up and down, and binding can go up and down. Uh, and that's what we hope to, to show uh, working with Kelly Fenshaw. And uh, again, working uh, with Sebastian Boré, um, this is, uh, remember that the DIOs, this is the paraventricular nucleus. Now this is, uh, 
immunocytochemistry chemistry for AGRP and alpha MSH. How are we doing? A little, okay. I'm almost done. Um, we, this is, remember, they have decreases in these, uh, in the normal situation. The large litter animals had an almost 50% increase if they were exposed to these large litters. Uh, and this, I believe, was done at P16. So here's a physiological or an anatomical correlate of increased leptin sensitivity early on. During, it had to have occurred during that early pathway development for the first two weeks of life really from P4 to about P12. Okay. So I, I call this the sticky slope. Um, I think this is what happens in people. Uh, you can always go up this slope, but getting people or our DIO rats back down the slope is almost impossible in most circumstances. Um, you, at any given point, they will defend whatever body weight they're at against either acute overfeeding or underfeeding. But most importantly, we can influence this and where people and uh, where rats sit on this uh, slope uh, by altering the perinatal environment, maybe permanently. We'd like to think that that's going to be possible. Um, putting them on a high-fat diet, yeah, well, we know that'll bring on obesity in these animals and in humans. Exercise, I think I've shown you that we can get a long-term effect of, of early on onset exercise. I haven't shown you about reward, but there's no question that that plays a big role in this. Uh, and neuroplasticity is sort of at the heart of this. So in conclusion, uh, perinatal interventions affect offspring development. Uh, they're highly dependent, at least in our model, on genetic background, and I don't think there's any reason to believe that it's that different in humans. Um, uh, and I would say that the best treatment for obesity is prevention. Uh, and that early recognition of obesogenic factors uh, and predisposition is essential. But we don't, that's where we fall down. But I told you at the beginning, we know that if you have one obese parent, your likelihood of becoming obese is high. If you have two, it's really quite high. And so if you're going to do interventional studies or try to find factors that predispose to obesity, I would say take the, the kids who have two obese parents, and that would be the group to, to focus on uh, if you're going to do human studies. And finally, uh, I think this, this idea of trying to increase leptin sensitivity is one that really has not been focused on in the pharmaceutical uh, industry. The one exception, uh, and it's sort of uh, almost serendipitous, is amylin. Uh, when you give amylin uh, to adults or to our DIO rats, this is the, the people at Amylin Corporation, uh, you get an increase in leptin sensitivity and uh, leptin-induced stat-3-phosphorylation in the ventral medium nucleus of those animals, and a synergistic effect with leptin in obese individuals, uh, humans, and, and rats um, when you give them both leptin uh, and amylin. And we've been working with them uh, together. We've shown that, that uh, giving them amylin uh, for a several week period, uh, uh, these are adult rats, increases leptin receptor binding in both the arcuate and the nucleus. So we're very interested in this, in this synergistic binding. So uh, these are the people who did all the work. <coughs> Um, Ambrose Dunmantle is my long-term associate. Uh, Judy Gorski and Krista Patterson were the, the uh, students who did a lot of the uh, studies that I showed you. Bauman Arani did the uh, leptin receptor binding. Crystal LaFold uh, did the leptin uh, sensitivity. These are some of the people who work in the lab, um, some of the collaborators, and, and uh, research funding comes from the VA Research Service, NIDK, and American Heart Association. Thank you.
I don't want to give up on that. We can do something. <laughs> I mean, we can't change the number of change fields. <laughs> but I mean, if I mean, in in, in your left, in, I mean, clearly your animals are left in you know insensitive early on before you get right. them off I mean, how about intervening post leptin receptor? Like, would they be really sensitive to MSH analogs the way cowling has shown? Oh, uh, when we yeah MT2, they're not more sensitive. Not. To, no. But does it work? Uh, yeah, it does work. Yeah, they're not less sensitive. They're just not more sensitive. And we've looked at at, um, at uh, alpha MSH receptor binding or yeah. melanocortin right. receptor binding, and that's exactly the same in both the DIOs and DRs, whether they've been on high fat or, or a low fat diet. So that that system downstream doesn't be, seem to be affected. So that you could still target that. Absolutely. Yeah, if you could find the drug. But do it without causing avoidable side effects. So, if you look at the pediatric data on the likelihood of persistence of obesity into adulthood, if you have two obese parents it's, and, and the child is obese in the first about two years of life, the likelihood of persistence is extraordinary. It's like you know, 15 times higher. Right. But that effect vanishes. If the child is not obese in that period of time, there's a very rapid in that, so that, that, that whatever that was seems to be done. What do you think? If they're not obese in that first two years. If they're not, if they're not obese in that first two or three right. year period. I think that's a, resistant, that's, that's, that's a resistant, that's uh, a resistant human. I think that they, you can make DIO rats obese by various manipulations, but they won't become obese as I guess I was asking if you think there's something in in human life in those first few years that could determine whether someone, that if you could protect your child, if you have two overweight parents, if you in some way protected the child from becoming obese in that period of time, would they, would that be the equivalent of exercising, and not devising putting your uniforms on treadmills or anything like that? I think you have to put them in a foster home. Uh, is the problem? I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm saying that facetiously, but you've got to get them out of the, of the obesogenic environment somehow. That's and that's an awful thing to say, but I, I don't know how else you could do it because. But, they, but in twin studies, I mean, you know, I mean, in other studies, kids look more like their biological parents and like their right. adopted uh, identical twin studies where they have more or less the same uh, genome, uh, gen uh, genotype. Yes, but uh, I think it's less robust when they're when they're uh, maternal. Yeah, but the adopter versus the biological twin studies, not twin, so adopter versus biological parent studies, would say that you know that kids look more like their parent, right. their biological parents, right. than their adopted parents. Yeah, and I wouldn't uh, disagree with that. Otherwise, I'd send everyone to the Tony. Right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. No, I I don't think it's there's there's not a simple answer to that. I I think the important thing is that. There's a, there is a clear gene by environment uh, interaction, and we don't, just don't understand it yet. And I don't think it's going to be a simple one because of the diversity of gene, genotypes that uh, predispose to obesity. Um, I don't know what these have, and I don't know, and I seriously doubt if there are humans who are leptin resistant from birth. I don't think that's the value of this model. I think the value of this model is that it provides us with a way of looking at early or any interventions that increase leptin sensitivity. I'm not proposing that there are people who look like it. It might be. It might be interesting to look, but I don't know how you do that. So. Thank you very much.